Let's reflect back in prayer what we just asked for in song. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're pausing in the midst of our week, and we've dedicated ourselves to you because we chose to be here. For those who are in person and those who are in their home right now or maybe at work and watching from a distant place, God, I ask that you would right now pour out your spirit upon us in such a way that there will not be any confusion about your word and you will bring great clarity to it. And as a result of us being strengthened, edified, even convicted by your word, that we're going to walk differently this week. That we will represent and we will show the world in such a way that we belong to you that it would be an attraction. So God, I ask that there would even be an aroma about us this week. I pray for this in the matchless name of the one who can do that for us, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning with you, I'm going to encourage you to go to Genesis chapter 4. Maybe have it electronically or a hard copy. If you're new here, the verses will be up on the screen as well. And we're going to get into this in in just a moment. Genesis chapter 4, verse 16 is where we're going to start at. So we're going to do uh, the remainder of chapter 4 today, and we're going to do chapter 5. And that might sound a little daunting to you, but it's kind of done in a glossary way, an overview, because it sets up next week, um, the, the flood And the flood is obviously something we've got to give a lot of attention to, but this is the precursor to it. Um, You should know that each week through the studies that I do for these mornings and and getting together with you, our, our studies in the Bible, I do really labor to capture the core of what God's Word is communicating. I'm going to be very careful to capture what He's putting forth. And the legitimate challenge is always, for me, what not to communicate, because there's so much there. there. There's so much. I mean, just the phrase, but God, I could do a three-week study on that. There's so much in here. So here's what I'm most concerned with. I'm most concerned with is getting it accurate, getting the meaning of the text accurate. And, and that takes time to develop. And it's especially challenging when you live in a soundbite society, right? Just saying. We can easily do a two-hour movie, but if we have to do a message out of God's Word for 30 minutes, like, come on, give me a break. So this one might edge more towards 40 minutes, but just bear with me because it's going to set up communion really well, and we're going to celebrate that in just a minute. So if you're new to New Hope, here's what I want you to know. Whether you're watching remotely or, or you're here in the auditorium, you need to know that we spend the time with these things, with this thought in mind, ultimately... Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the New Testament, in some way, is pointing to Jesus. It's the truth of Scripture. He's the reason that we're here. He's the reason that we learn. He's the reason we want to understand these things in a richer, deeper way. So with that in mind, let's go to Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. And when you arrive at this point in verse 16, you find the origins of culture. What we know as society, it begins springing forth off the pages right there. Yet at the same time, Genesis 4 reveals just how desperately we need God's promise of a rescuer. And both of those components are in there. So on the surface, at first, you can read Genesis 4 and you can read Genesis 5 and you're going to think, that's a lot of information. There's so much detail there. It even appears sort of random. 
Yeah, it is so much more. It is so much more than that. It's expansive regarding a very unique era in human history. And I say a very unique era in human history because it's the pre-flood society. It's the people who lived before the time of Noah. We need to remember that humans today have been here far longer than those who were pre-flood. We're the post-flood people, but the people pre-flood, they were here maybe 1,600 years. So that pre-flood civilization is pretty brief. So today, scholars call that the antediluvian society. That, that phrase, antediluvian, if you think of the word deluge, like flood, being flooded over, deluvian comes from that. The antediluvian, meaning before the flood, the antediluvian society, the people who lived before the flood of Noah. And it's introduced this way in verse 16. This is where we left off last week. It says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So this is actually the word Nod in the Hebrew is the land of wandering. It was titled after him because he was a wanderer. He was a vagrant. God sent him out because he had done what he'd done to his brother. He'd murdered his brother, and so he's, he left the presence of God. Now, as best we understand it, because the Garden of Eden is in the region of the Fertile Crescent around the Tigris River and the Euphrates River that are mentioned in Genesis, we understand that if he went east of there, he's headed towards Pakistan or what we know today as India. He's somewhere wandering throughout that particular region, trying to find a place to settle down. And then we find in verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. And right away, I want to point out to you, that's not the same Enoch of chapter 5. They're cousins. This is a different Enoch. This is in the line of Cain. Enoch, though, means the same thing. The Jewish calendar today celebrates Hanukkah. Well, Hanukkah comes from Hanuk, Enoch. We pronounce it Enoch. They didn't pronounce it that way. It means to initiate or to originate. Well, because... Enoch is the first child from this couple. They decided to name him Originate or Initiate, real original, right? All right? So that's what they went with because he's the first one that came from them. But besides that, we see that he began to build a city. But here's the word I wanted to bear down on, Banah. It says he began to build or to set up. See, God's curse is on him, and he's this wandering vagant. And he, he's not able to stay any place. So there's a rabbi, Nakamedes, in the 13th century who said the, the problem with Cain is that he's constantly on the move. So he began to build a city. He never finished it. He began to build the structures. He got it started for his family. He set it up, got things going, in other words, but it was never complete. Now, all that aside, here's a question that typically surfaces when you read that. Where did his wife come from? How did he get her? And it leaves people with a lot of confusion. So if you accept that Adam and Eve are the first humans, logically, you're going to deduce something that's going to cause you to go, oh, gross. It's his sister, right? So this is something we really need to explore and understand. It's either a sister or it's a niece. Remember now, let me qualify this. This is an extremely long period of time. When 
Humans were living, in other words, long spans, long spans of biological life during this very unique period of time. It's highly likely that Cain didn't even know his siblings because there were so many of them and he was out in the land of wandering. Very possibly Cain is a hundred years old when he finally found a wife because he's been this vagabond and this, this wanderer and he's under this curse of God. So let me pause right there for you because I wanna hit this age issue. Here's how I understand this. Here's how I can make sense of this in my mind from all the study and all the research I've done over decades. This very long life of humans that's recorded in scripture is sustained by two very specific bios. And by that I mean that in, in deliberately, bio, B-I-O. Both the biological makeup of the humans and the biosphere. And we'll expand on this next week as we get into the issues of the flood. Here's the first bio. The, the biology of human life in a non-deformed state does not preclude longer life. Today, science is actually quite divided over how long a human body can actually live if it wasn't for the mutations in genetics that we understand and see and experience today, if it were not for disease. Here's what science does agree on. Science does agree that if it were not for the strong radiation energy coming from our sun and the genetic mutations that have passed on from human to human, longer human life is absolutely possible. The question is, how long? Well, the Bible records that that possibility that science explores is actually a fact. It says it actually is quite a long span of time because of this reason. Humans were not built to die. Originally, we were built to live forever. God said that that would be the result of sin. You're going to die in the day that you eat of it. So we weren't built to die. Sin brought that. Can I remind you of Romans 5.12? Look with me. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's what your research has yielded for me, a, a viable understanding. And, and this is a bit above, way above, actually, my pay grade. I, this is what I read and understand from credible scientists who study these things who are creation-minded. The fossil record reveals that prior to the earth, the earth had a very tropical environment. But after the flood, after the catastrophic results of the judgment of God on this earth, there was clearly an environmental change. Climate change resulted in an ice age, and an ice age covered 30 to almost 40% of the surface of the earth as a result of the flood. Now, this, together with the topography changes that were brought on because of the global flood, it, paid, it played a huge role in affecting lifespan. So, prior to the judgment of God with the flood on the earth, this is what science speculates, that earth's climate was much more stable. In other words, much more balmy. Think like a biodome, a God-engineered ecosystem inside this globe that we call planet Earth. So our globe functioning like an enclosed environment with a different kind of hydrological cycle that we understand today. This is what they would explain if you did some of this research. Uh, not the violent winds that we know today, not the violent storms, and not the crustal displacement where we get earthquakes, 
but rather because that was a result of the judgment of God. So plant life and animal life existing in a balanced equilibrium. So biblically-minded geologists use these indications to say that from the North Pole to the South Pole, it appears that things were much more temperate. So if you put the pieces together, because of the stable climate and the fantastic genetics handed from Adam and Eve down to their children, the Bible indicates that people actually lived hundreds of years. So we learn in chapter 5 that Adam lived 930 years. And Methuselah is recorded as living 969 years. And biblically-minded scientists would say that's directly linked to the genetics and the environment. So here's a quote from a couple scientists. I would encourage you to look this one up later today if you get a chance by the names of these two individuals. Go to a website called Answers in Genesis. And you put these names in and just search long life. And there's a fantastic paper will come up that I spent a lot of time studying. Here's a, just an excerpt from that. From Dr. Georgia Prudhomme and David Minton, it says this, the Bible teaches quite plainly that the early patriarchs often lived to be nearly 1,000 years old and even had children when they were several hundred years old. Similar claims of long lifespans are found in the secular literature of several ancient cultures, including the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Indians, and the Chinese. Back to where we're at again. This global flood not only wiped out all of humanity, but it also reshaped the planet. Thereby, it changed the climate. And we'll cover that next week as we explore the flood. So chapter 4 and chapter 5 tell us, prior to that moment, there were many sons and daughters that are being born throughout these very long lifespans. If you're super healthy and you've got a great diet and a wonderful climate and a very long life, how many children can a person have if they live 900 years? Lots. Here's a couple of examples for you. This comes from Genesis 5.3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years. Catch this next part. And he had other sons and daughters whom we don't know anything about, but apparently they kept having them. Verse 5, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Or this one, verse 32 from chapter 5, Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 500 years, he's just getting started. And we don't know if there's others, but we know about these three because they went into the ark with him. So if your parents and your grandparents are Adam and Eve... And they're genetically perfect because God pronounced day six of creation when he said they're very, very good. Perfect muscle tone, perfect structure, perfect intellect, perfect skin, perfect teeth, perfect eyes. And God says they're very, very good. It's logical that you're going to inherit their traits and their strengths. And, and so the offspring of Adam and Eve are living a very long time, and they have many children, and the environmental climate is very mild, and every day is Earth Day. In other words, it's a very different kind of green planet, very friendly to you. So back to the question, long way to get to this. What about Cain's wife then? 
So in the earliest generations, it becomes clear that clearly all these marriages at first are interfamily, meaning cousins, marrying cousins and nieces and nephews. They're marrying each other, even brothers and sisters. It wasn't until after the flood when the law of Moses was put in place in which God said, no more of that. Apparently, the genetic mutation was so severe, God said, stop it, because this becomes extremely dangerous to the human race. But with a pristine biological element in humanity at that time, life in this world without the mutant genes that you and I know today, deformation was not yet known to them. But to be sure, sin had entered the world, and it came into the world and it brought death with it, according to what we saw in Romans 5.12. But the genetics had not yet deteriorated to the point where it caused a shortened life. So most scientists who hold to the biblical creation account speculate that this antediluvian world was likely populated not just by tens of millions of people or by hundreds of millions of people, but by billions of people. Multiple individuals came to me after the first service that showed me their calculator to let me know that they'd done the calculations that I'm about to share with you. And and sure enough, it it bared out what I'm about to share with you. If you go back to the first century, you'll find that in the first century, there was about between 200 and 300 million humans on the planet. And I I don't mean just in Rome. I mean in the entire surface of the planet, 200 to 300 million people is the population. Yet from that period of time, 2,000 years ago, we have swelled to 7 billion plus people on this planet. That's almost the same framework of time, 1,600 years from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of the flood. And many creation scientists speculate that there was very likely upwards of well over a billion people on the planet at this time. We've had war, we've had genocide, we've had abortion, we've had disease, we've had early death. And yet we've still swelled to 7 billion people. They didn't have any of those deficiencies. So for 1,500 years after creation, people lived such a long life that most of them were contemporaries of Adam or knew someone who was. I'm going to show you a chart next week that will help you understand this, but how cool would it be to say to your parents, hey, mom and dad, today I'm going to go hang out with Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve. Like, you could do that because they were still there. However, even with a lifespan of a 1,000 years, we would have to say it's still very, very brief when we considered that God originally created us to live forever. It's this fallen, godless world that takes us out. Therefore, a rescuer is really, really needed. And somewhere along the way, a new body wouldn't be so bad either, because this one's wearing out. Amen? All right. <laughs> You're a little slow on the response on that one. We know exactly what's going on. We're aging. So, another pause. If you happen to think what I've been speaking of is a stretch to reality, perhaps, maybe, it's actually because our perspective is skewed, and we need to correct our perspective. So 20 years ago, I was reading a scientific journal, and I came across a fascinating article on these trees that are called the kauri trees in New Zealand. 
And they had been recently uncovered within 10 years previous to this article. And so they, about 30 years ago, somewhere in the 90s, somebody discovered these things because they are out in their farm field. And I, I wanna put this image up on the screen for you so I can explain to you what you're looking at. And I'm gonna ask you to just leave that image up there for a minute and bear with me on this explanation. So a farmer is working in his field in New Zealand. And he's working with an excavator and he wants to put in some drain lines and he hits this tree that they've labeled kauri trees, K-A-U-R-I. And as he's working along it, he, he discovers it's not only very deep in the soil, but it's really, really long, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. So he calls up one of his buddies and says, hey, you've got to get over here so I can show you this thing. Now, I, I did a really good Australian accent in the first service, but in between services, my son Derek, who lived in Australia, came to me and said, you might not want to do that again. Say, this sounds a little bit like Forrest Gump. <laughs> well, too bad, Derek. I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> I won't do much of it, but just hear this guy. <laughs> I said, how big is it? That doesn't sound like Forrest Gump, does it? Okay. I'll hear this. <laughs> yes, somebody said. And, and this is the farmer talking back to the guy. He said, he says, I can ride my horse across it. I said, yeah, right, because he's a bit of a storyteller. <laughs> hey, that was pretty good. Right? So they, they actually, he goes on in the quote to say, this thing was so gigantic that they just kept digging along it and digging along it and digging along it and digging along it. They found that these things are 200 feet long. Now, I, I want to show you the next image so you capture what's going on. If a chunk of the tree requires two earth excavators to mount it onto a truck, and we're just talking about there, a 15-foot piece of it. How big is this thing? Well, the next image will give you a really clear indication of just how big it is because you're going to see just another chunk of it. Here's the cool thing. When scientists arrived on the scene, and, and now there's these fields that they've discovered, thousands upon thousands of these things that are buried below the peat moss that they believe fell during or just before the Ice Age, something cataclysmic caused them to collapse and they got buried over by Earth. But they know because of the depth, they've been there an extremely long period of time. And then they started counting the growth rings. These things were 2,000 years old when they fell. 2,000 years old. Perhaps our perspective should be that in another world, in another time, things were much bigger and lived a lot longer than what we know today. So we have these upcoming verses in a pre-flood society that's quickly, quickly populating the earth and they've got very long, healthy lives and they're living in this richly beautiful environment. And all indications are that these humans are super strong, much stronger physically than what we know today. I mean, think about Noah building that ark and dragging those timbers. I need a truck and I need chains to move logs. He didn't have that. How does he get those timbers in place? And then we find these humans are highly resistant to aging and they're extremely healthy and they're super intelligent and they're highly experienced and their skill levels are off the chart. Can you imagine if you could play the cello for 600 years, how good would you be? Yo-Yo <laughs> Ma would look like a kindergartner next to you. What if you could take 400 years to build your kitchen table? That'd be a pretty great table. 
See, time is not a factor. There's no rush for them whatsoever. So here's my question. Where are these people putting their energies? So let's look at what these two family lines that are being produced out of Adam and Eve do in this highly productive society. Because the biblical record demonstrates that society develops out of two family lines. The line of Cain, who's wandering, and the line of Seth. And the Bible indicates that Cain is producing a line of rebels against God, and Seth is producing a line of those who worship God. Now, from a biblical perspective, there's only two races of people still to this day. Not based on nationality, but rather based on are they rebelling against God or are they worshiping God? Cain is producing a line of murderers. Seth is producing a line of people who are righteous. Here it goes, verse 18. Now Enoch was born in Irod, and, or born Irod, and Irod became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Mathashael, and Mathashael became the father of Lamech. And by the way, that's also not the same Lamech of chapter 5. That's also a cousin. It's a familiar name in this era, and it's like naming somebody John. And then verse 19, Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. So living within this region where Cain has been developing this city, and he began to build structures, there's a town named after his son, Enoch. And you're watching culture develop. Verse 20 says, Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So some in Cain's line become nomadic, what we might call Bedouin. But they're the managers of animals, and they're not just herdsmen. The Scriptures actually indicate the language that's used is they're advancing the science of animal husbandry. They're, they're learning about breeding and developing livestock, not just maintaining it, but actually advancing it. And because the livestock need to graze and the earth is full of great vegetation, they're moving from region to region so the livestock will flourish. And then verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe, and pipe is a, a flute. Jubal is investing himself in developing musical instruments. Can I just say, what an awesome gift of God that he gave us music, right? Like, he didn't have to do that. Music belongs to him, and he gave it to us. He allowed us to uncover it. So we're told that Jubal is the father of those who play the instruments, which means this guy needed the wisdom to develop a musical scale. And he needed to have an understanding of mathematics, the mathematics of music. And he needed to understand a way to put the arrangements down. So he not only invents instruments, obviously he has the skill to build the instruments and the ability to play and teach because he's transferring this information to other people. So he's developed a way to write down the songs and then culture continues to develop because we find this about the manufacturing realm. Verse 22, as for Zillah, this is the other wife, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Now, to be a person who works with iron ore, I know I worked in a foundry. I understand what it is to pour molten metal into a cast. You've got to get access to that iron ore first. If you're going to get to bronze, you've got to have a source for it. How are you getting that out of the ground? 
Well, in Job chapter 28, there's actually very interesting if you don't know the Bible, but Job is considered to be the most ancient writing of the Bible, even though it's not the first one listed because it falls in line later. It was considered to be the oldest source material. In Job chapter 28, he records this particular verse. You're not going to see it on the screen. Just listen. Job 28 verse 9, he puts his hand on the flint, overturns the mountains at the base, and what he's doing is he's describing a miner in chapter 28, a person who works in the soil. And so a flint, a flint stone, it was used to spark a flame, to start a torch. And what Job has just written is this guy is taking a flint, he's lighting a torch, he's going down into the bowels of the earth with his torch, and he's overturning the earth at the base of the mountain to pull the ore out. Somehow they knew to overturn a mountain, and in the mining process, they're hewing out these channels through the core of the earth to bring the iron ore out. What you should be catching is the Bible is not depicting the earliest humans as Neanderthal or mentally diminished in some way. These are not cavemen eating raw flesh. Rather, they're humans created in the image of God. They're wonderfully made, and they're stronger and healthier and smarter and wiser and highly skilled and of incredibly creative people. That's true because God is a God of order. Not that, and it shouldn't be confused with this, not that the skills of mankind are always used for the glory of God because that exact same culture demonstrates sin is not diminishing. Rather, it's increasing and it's spreading like a virus around the planet because you have Lamech as the prime example, verse 23 of chapter 4. Lamech, remember this is not the one of chapter 5, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain, if Grandpa Cain, if Grandfather is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So he's got knowledge of what happened with Cain. He's got knowledge that Cain killed Abel. He's got knowledge that God said, I'll take out vengeance on anyone that tries to take you down. You saw that last week. So he's got knowledge of God's word, but he also has something that's within him that's just like his grandpa, vengeance. And vengeance is incredibly ugly, especially when it's combined with an unbridled ego. And this is egotism run wild. He's saying, if God's vengeance is sevenfold for my grandpa, that's not good enough. Vengeance for me, it's going to be 77 times. I want it more than that for me because I'm so important. So scholars, as they study this, they realize, and maybe you see it in your Bible when you read it, he actually wrote that in poetic form. He wrote that like a song. Like if it had been written in the 21st century, it'd be turned into hip-hop. And he's saying something about himself. Like this guy tried to take me out, I'd taken him out. See, he's celebrating murder with a badge of honor. And he's declaring it in this poem. We know this about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We also know that God says he exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. But this guy is coming on the stage as a prime example of the degradation within Cain's line, but it doesn't stop there. Because within the Bible, the illustration of a truly declining society is the collapse of the family. 
See, it's not only that Lamech commits murder. We're told that he took two wives. And God's design is one man and one woman. You see that back in the earliest parts of Genesis. God's design is one man, one woman. That's marriage for life. But in Cain's line, his offspring is already ceasing to be monogamous. Further reminding us that when you step out of God's will, it's going to lead to the decline of the society structure, not the improvement of society. So I want you to think through this. All of this timeline that we've just discussed, it all takes place within the lifetime of Adam. He lives 930 years, and Adam lives to see nearly the birth of Noah. You'll see that next week, that almost within 40 years of Noah being born, their lives don't quite overlap. So Adam lives long enough to see a vastly populated world. He lives long enough to see it become incredibly corrupted by sin. And by that point, I'm not sure if he thought long life was such a blessing, that maybe that wasn't such a fun thing to see, because he lives to see his own son murder his own son. He lives to see Cain leave the presence of God. He lives to see Cain become a wanderer and a secular, godless culture develop. And he lives to see Lamech break God's design for marriage. Those aren't things that he would want to see. Yet personally, Adam personally heard the promise of God that there will be a seed of the woman, that there will be a rescuer who will come one day and crush the enemy, who would destroy the serpent. So I'm thinking every day there's hope in his heart that paradise will be regained one day. So I'm imagining every new birth, every new baby coming into the world has to be producing the sense of hope. Like, is this the one? Is this the one who's going to be the rescuer? Uh, Pastor Rich, who wrote the booklet I'm encouraging you to pick up that's out in the atrium, he has this quote that you'll see this week in your study. It says this, the entire passage echoes the spreading, metastatic, deadly effect of sin while maintaining a glimmer of hope for mankind in the righteous bloodline of Seth. So since we're mentioning Seth, let's just touch on his line. It says this in verse 25 and 26, and this is kind of introducing Seth's family line in chapter 4. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And right out of the gate, we see at the front end of Seth's line, mankind begins to worship. And it's referring to worshiping collectively, what we're doing together. See, before this point, they were coming to God individually. But this is the seed of people coming together to worship God. But you should notice in all that you just looked at in Cain's line, there was no mention whatsoever of the worship of God. And this is very deeply significant. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's tracing Seth's line, and the opening words there are really worthy of your very close attention because this worship issue is talking about a relationship with God. And right out of the gate, it's saying, this is the identity of Seth's line. This is who they are. See, herein is the distinction. There's no mention of this in Cain's line. There's no reference to God whatsoever. Even with all the cultural advancements, 
Even with all the technology, God is not in their picture. So bear down with me just for a second on verse 25. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And I told you, this is talking about collectively, people coming together to worship together. What you should be noticing as you work through chapter 4 and chapter 5, you can read it later today yourself. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 don't reveal the accomplishments of Seth's family line. Even though there were. Even when the full lineage is expressed in chapter 5. Even though his line also produces great craftsmen like Noah. You want to go to the school of shipbuilding? Go see Noah. I mean, he could teach you a thing, or thing, a thing or two about woodworking, right? I'd love to study under him. And, by the way, he can manage animals. And, by the way, he makes really fine wine. But these things are not the identity of Seth's line. Seth's line is identified foremost by who they belong to and their response to that identity. Are you identified first and foremost by who you belong to? Are you identified by who God says you are? And what's your response like to that? Seth's line does highlight Enoch. It says in Scripture that he was so righteous that he walked with God and he was no more, for he was taken. He walked with God 365 years and boom, he's gone. We know he didn't see death. And Seth's line also does emphasize Noah, who was really righteous, and we're told that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But there's one more I want to show you. And if you just bear with me a minute, I, I think it's so cool. I, I digress a moment, and yet it's really worth your time. We're given this fantastic piece of information in Luke chapter 3 about the genealogy of Jesus. Did you know the genealogy of Jesus is traced right back to Seth's line? Look at this. It says this in Luke 3.23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. By the time you get down to verse 36, it says this. Still speaking of Jesus, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That really gets my geek factor going. I know I nerd out on theology stuff, but that's so cool. Thank you, God, that you included that. See, from Scripture's perspective, from a, a biblical spiritual perspective, there's two lines of people, two very different cultures coexisting on this planet. Still true today. It was true then. It will be true until the end of Earth's history. A family legacy may have great accomplishments in it. And there may be things you can look at and be proud of. But if it's not first and foremost rooted in a relationship with God, the end result is always the same. It's as old as time. All these things that Cain's family line accomplished brought a really rich advancement to society. And there's some pretty impressive people in Cain's lineage. But even though they're the direct descendants of Adam and Eve, and they possess the image of God, and they've got all this technology, ultimately, they end up being destroyed by a global flood because of the sin and the wickedness that permeates and dominates their identity. So at this point, you would want to be fair in regard to Seth's line as well. Because at the very beginning, the line of Seth, they really appear righteous. 
But even out of that, very few remained loyal to God because by the time you get to Noah, there's only eight. There's only eight righteous people. So sin obviously permeated that line as well. Eight righteous people on the entire planet. We've been reminded today in our study that there's these two distinct lines in culture which still remain here on this planet in the 21st century. A society that is ungodly and very self-serving, yet here's the hard thing from the outside. It can appear to be extremely successful, highly accomplished, but inside is just death if it's not bringing glory to God. It's, it's void and it, it's empty. So we're about to step into communion, and I want to give you a qualifier to this based on what you've just looked at. There's a huge risk when you read what you did today. You could easily think that your family of origin determines your eternal destiny, especially if you're new to church. You might even read this and think, well, my family of origin would even determine whether or not I'm going to be successful on this planet. But as far as material accomplishment is concerned, certainly your family can give you a leg up. But again, if those accomplishments are not for the glory of God, well, they amount to nothing. Because if there's no relationship to God through Jesus Christ, well, it, it amounts to nothing. I want to be especially clear about this. Your family of origin does not determine your eternal destiny. You are who God declares you to be. If you belong to Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God, and thereby you stand to gain an amazing inheritance one day, an amazing eternal inheritance, far greater than anything this planet can offer. Because Jesus not only gives total forgiveness of sin, and I've emphasized this many times in the past, and I'll do it again, regardless of your past, Jesus gives total forgiveness of your sin when you become a believer, but he also gives you eternity in paradise. So let's just frame this as we step into communion. In the last days of this planet, we're told that all the material accomplishments, all the technological advancements, everything that we consider to be great, from the Mona Lisa to the greatest piece of computer software, all of it is going to burn. All of our bank accounts, all the technological advancements, it all goes up in smoke. Even as fantastically resourceful as humanity has become, there's going to be a removal of all things. Nothing remains except a relationship with Jesus. That's the only thing that counts. So it's because of this truth that we desperately need the rescuer. We desperately need a savior. And that's why we get to celebrate communion, because we celebrate the Lord's table today, not as an add-on or trying to wedge it into chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Genesis, but because we have a Savior, and His name is Jesus, and He rescues us from the wrath to come. So in keeping with our tradition here at New Hope, every time we do communion, I just read the paragraph from 1 Corinthians 11, because Paul uses that to remind those who are believers in Jesus that we should not take this lightly, this one who's rescued us from the wrath to come, but rather we take it with sincerity and we examine ourselves. So we have these instructions. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We allow time for you to examine yourself here at New Hope. I engaged in conversation with people between services who were wondering what disqualifies me from participating in the table. First of all, you want to be a believer in Jesus Christ because when you lift the bread and you lift the cup, you're saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. I believe this. So you do want to be a believer if you're going to come to one of the tables. But back to their question, what disqualifies me? Well, Paul's writing about this issue of examining yourself so that we would make sure that we're not living in sin, egregious behavior against God, but rather we participate in communion so that we would say, thank you for taking away my sin. So if you have something you need to confess to the Father, this is a great time for you to do it right in the seat where you're at in the quietness of your space. Take your time, examine yourself, talk to the Father. And when you're ready, come to the tables, front or back of the auditorium. There's a two-cup system here, and when you pick up one cup, you're actually picking up two. It's got the bread and the juice in it. Take those elements back to your seat, and I will talk you through the rest. But this time right now is for you to talk. Father, I thank you for the witness that has just taken place. For individuals who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are willing to say it publicly, we own this. We not only believe that you died and that you were resurrected, but that you're coming back again. And we look forward to that day. So we praise you for this moment right now in which we can worship you because you're worthy of all our worship and all our praise. It's, it's a great way for you to send us out the door, God. So I ask that your blessing would rest heavily upon us as we work to be a force for your kingdom. Use us to represent. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said,